Welcome to Women in International Law, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights and the Atlas Network. Join us and hear from women with varied experiences and career paths in the field of international law. Coming up in this episode... A career is a long period of time and that um, pathways are not always straight. So you, if, even if you have a goal, you don't always get there by the most, the straightest route. Sometimes it's more circuitous. Greetings, everyone. I'm Nathalie Mivela-Tirabosco. I'm the head of communication and external relations at the Geneva Academy. And I am thrilled to introduce Lucy McKernan, our guest for the first episode of our podcast, Women in International Law. Lucy is the deputy director for United Nations at Human Rights Watch, Geneva office, where she is responsible for advocacy work at the UN Human Rights Council and other UN human rights mechanisms. Before joining Human Rights Watch, Lucy was the Geneva representative for the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, where she established and led the Geneva office and conducted advocacy on economic, social and cultural rights. Lucy is a qualified lawyer who practiced in Australia and was the director of legal services at Justice Connect, where she undertook national law reform advocacy on homelessness and access to justice and was responsible for pro bono legal clinics, providing legal advice and representation to persons experiencing homelessness and to older persons. It goes without saying that we have the perfect guest to delve into a conversation about a career in human rights advocacy. Therefore, my initial question for you, Lucy, is precisely why human rights advocacy? Was this your goal from the beginning? Hello, Natalie. Yeah, thanks um, for inviting me to the podcast and for the question. Yeah, so I suppose I I um, have always wanted to work in, in human rights. Um, perhaps at that time I described it more as social justice, Um, when I was uh, studying law back in Australia, where I'm from, uh, there was no human rights course in the university that I went to. So I framed, you know, what I wanted to work on more as, as social justice and fighting for justice in the world. Um, but as I said, I started, uh, I, I took law and then the pathways in Australia were uh, not clear, I think, to work on, on human rights. Uh, so I started in, in private practice in a commercial law firm, which was quite a common pathway at that stage in Australia where I, where I was um, starting my career and then moved into human rights later on in my career. Good. And thanks, Lucy. Can you highlight a, a particular moment or experience that you consider pivotal in shaping your career path in human rights? Well, there are a couple of points, I suppose. Um, as I said, I was working in, in private practice. Um, this the, the law firm that I worked for had a very strong pro bono um, practice, which means you know lawyers who are providing services for free to people who couldn't afford legal services on um, what I would describe as hum uh, social justice issues, public interest issues. So I was very involved in that program at the, at the firm I was working at. So that was probably the, one of the first um, inspirations, if you like. Um, I also took a, a leave of absence whilst I was working there to go and work for Reprieve Australia. Um, but I went to the US, to New Orleans, where I worked at an anti-death penalty legal service. 
um, called the Louisiana Crisis Assistance Centre. Uh, and so my job there was helping the lawyers who were representing people either on death row or facing the death penalty. Um, and that was an extremely inspiring experience too. I mean, for me, it really showed me um, a pathway, you know, how I could work on the things that I really wanted to work on with the skills that I had already developed as a lawyer. And how did you move from this more local community work to the Geneva scene, which is more global and working with, with international human rights mechanisms? Yeah, so we, I moved with my family to Geneva in 2013. Um, and so then I, I looked for a job in more in the international space. Um, and that's when I started working with the Global Initiative, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Um, it was a good fit for me because my work at the Community Legal Service um, back in Australia had been quite a lot on homelessness uh, and issues for, you know, helping people who were uh, experiencing homelessness. So then, uh, yeah, when I came to Geneva, um, this job at the Global Initiative came up. It was a new role for them in, in Geneva. So I, my role was to sort of establish the Geneva office and, and represent the organisation there um, on issues uh, uh, relating to economic, social and cultural rights. And what type of advice do you you wish you had received when you started your career and that you did not get? Um, I do remember some advice that I got that I thought was very good. <laughs> that wasn't your question, but um, from a from actually one of the partners at the law firm I worked at, a um, very wise woman who emphasised to me that a career is a long uh, take is a long period of time and that um, pathways are not always straight. So you, if even if you have a goal, you don't always get there by the most the straightest route. Sometimes it's more circuitous. Um, and I thought that was really good advice that there there are different experiences that you can get doing different things along the way. Um, you can kind of meander more in your career um, uh, to get to where you you want to get to. So yeah, I thought that was helpful. Um, in terms of advice that I didn't get, um, I suppose it was more, it wasn't that I didn't get it, but it was, it's, it's a difficult question to answer, I think, and that was, you know, how to, how to manage work-life balance. You know, that's the, the conundrum that many of us face in our careers, particularly if, um, if you have children, uh, which I do. So um, I had lots of, yeah, great advice from, from women that I worked with, but Really, I think the answer is one that you need to find yourself in terms of the balance that works for you, and it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> have you? Have you? And that's a bit in relation to what you just you just said. Have you encountered any specific obstacle, um, and how did you did you navigate them? Um, and were these specific to being a woman or not necessarily? Yeah, I think that the the one on sort of work-life balance and, and um, where you have, have children to look after is a, is a tricky one, um, perhaps not an obstacle but a challenge at least um, that I needed to manage. Um, for a lot of my career I did work part-time when I had young children, so I worked three days for a while and then four days for a long time. Um, and I think you can fall into that trap of working um you know, working four days nominally, but in fact doing five days in the space of four. Uh, so I think, as I said, I think it's about trying to find the balance that works for you and for your family. 
Um, I think I found the balance at certain points along the way and then <laughs> it was disrupted by things changing, of course. Um, so, yeah, I don't that, – that's one of, the, one of the challenges for sure and particularly, I suppose, being a woman, although I think it's a similar challenge for men and certainly one thing I found with my male colleagues um, who had children around the same time was that there was less of a expectation that they'd be taking, you know, working part-time. So my husband, for instance, worked part-time as well when we had young children, but it was less expected and, and people were a little bit surprised to find that out. So I think that's a, a challenge also for, for men. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Now, now moving to, to your current job at, at Human Rights Watch, um, how, how this job now for a big human rights organization doing advocacy at, at the UN differs from what you've done for like a smaller NGO, like the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. How does this advocacy differ from these two institutions? Yeah, uh, it, they are quite different in some ways, um, although I, I suppose based on very similar skills, the skills that you develop. Um, when you work for a smaller organisation, of course, you're expected to do a lot more of everything. So there's not a big Human, right, human resources department behind you. There's not a finance department. You have to do these smaller things yourself. Um, and I think that in some way that's, um, that was really valuable experience because I learned skills that I, that I wouldn't have otherwise learned. And those sorts of functions now are, at Human Rights Watch are performed by others, so I have to do less of that. Um, I think working at a smaller organisation also allows some allows you to be more nimble and responsive or flexible, if you like. Whereas, obviously, with a big organisation, there are um, res sort of restrictions on uh, what you can say, and you know you need to be consulting with all of your colleagues across the across the world um, before you can you can take action. So, you know, I think there's a flexibility and nimbleness that I like about small organisations. Um, But on the other hand, obviously, with Human Rights Watch, um, it's hugely beneficial to work with an organisation that has a very strong reput reputation, is known across the world, particularly known by the media. So um, it ma makes it easier, I suppose, um, to do your advocacy because um, the doors are already open, if you like. So um, at a small organisation, you might spend a lot more time trying to get into the room to have the conversations Whereas at an organisation that has an established reputation, um, you get invitations to, to meetings and so on to speak um, and then, you know, your job starts with the, with the advocacy then. So I think, yeah, there's different roles in, that they play. And do you think you make a difference with your advocacy work? I really hope so. <laughs> That's always the question, isn't it? Is, it, is this really making a difference? Um, you know, we, we do get feedback uh, from from states, certainly the states that I engage with here in Geneva, that um, our messages are helpful or are listened to within um, the bureaucracies that they that they represent. So, so that sometimes is, is satisfying to hear. Um, I suppose you know we acknowledge we we're only part of the um, ecosystem. We, we're one small contribution to the bigger human rights um, movement and. Um, I hope we we make a valuable con contribution in that way. And what skills um, are essential in your work today, according to you? Um, 
Yeah, so I suppose I would say advocacy itself is a skill, so influencing people um, is really a skill that you need to develop. Um, Also building relationships. A big part of my work is having um, strong relationships of trust and confidence with with diplomats who I engage with, um, with my colleagues within the organisation, with other NGOs with whom we collaborate a lot, um, and obviously with with UN agencies and UN experts as well. So I spend a lot of time doing that sort of networking and, and relationship building work. Um, and then, yeah, then the, the sort of advocacy skills. And I think there it's about, you know, identifying who your audience is, um, what the what the levers for change are, you know, what what's going to be what are going to be influential arguments. Um, I think also, yeah, as I said, kind of collaboration is a really key part as well. We at least here in Geneva, the NGO groups work really well together. So I spent a lot of time talking to my my NGO colleagues from other NGOs working on human rights and collaborating with them to to sort of build campaigns together towards our shared objectives. Um, so that sort of collaboration work is really important as well. And do you have you seen you've seen the field evolving as well because you've been here for for quite some time? Are there new skills that are needed now that were probably not that necessary or needed a few years ago? Um, perhaps on the on the technological side a little bit. Um, you know the use of new technologies. Um, you know increasingly is an important part of our work. And how how do you remain motivated and engaged in your work? Human Rights Council sessions after sessions, crisis after crisis, how do you do you continue to to motivate yourself? I think the most motivating and, and stimulating part of, of my job is is working with um with our experts. So Human Rights Watch um we have experts who do the research who are on the ground um, uh, researching the, the human rights crises around the world. And then they come to Geneva often and we do, you know, rounds of meetings together. I find that incredibly inspiring to hear, you know, their work, the depth of their knowledge and understanding of the issues. Um, but also uh, when, when I work with, with human rights defenders and so, you know, those are the people who are really experiencing these situations Um, and that was the same when I worked at the national level. I really valued the time that we were able to spend with clients, but also with um, people who who were formerly homeless who'd become advocates themselves. So people who have really lived life experience. That's um, that I, I find the most inspiring part of the job, and it reminds you, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. Um, kind of grounds you, I suppose. So so that and and then the other part I think is. Kind of really believing in the um, the human rights and the the legal frameworks that they will that they can do the job, um, and that they can be relied on uh, to force governments and and rights abusers um, to com- to comply with the law. And do you have some main achievements to share in human rights advocacy, like something you really? think you managed to with you and the campaigns and and working with other organization to really achieve yeah um i mean there are different 
different things. I suppose at Human Rights Watch, one of the main achievements I think that I that I was really proud of, you know, and and, and my colleagues who who also worked on this was the establishment by the Human Rights Council of a commission of inquiry on the situation in Ethiopia um, some years ago now. Unfortunately, that that commission of inquiry recently um, its mandate was not renewed, but when it was established, it was a very difficult, um, uh, difficult campaign uh, for its establishment at the Human Rights Council, um, but on an incredibly important issue because it was such a brutal um, conflict in, in Tigray, the Tigray region of Ethiopia at the time. Uh, and there was, you know, it really felt like the establishment of this Commission of Inquiry did represent the possibility of accountability for the victims that we were, we were seeing in that conflict. So that was one, one um, I suppose, achievement. Um, I also worked when I was at Global Initiative on um, the campaign for the recognition of the right to a healthy environment, which is a very significant um, uh, moment, I suppose, in, in, in the human rights movement when the Human Rights Council and then subsequently the General Assembly recognised uh, the right to a healthy environment as, as, a, a, as a human right. And I think that was a really significant moment for me. It was it was sort of the closing of the circle, if you like. You know, the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights when it was established, environment was not really seen as part of the the discussion around human rights. And there's been a very sig- significant evolution since then. I think, um, and it seemed to me that this was the moment when there was a recognition that for someone to live a dignified life, you also need to pay attention to and provide a healthy environment. Um, not just the rights that we already saw in, in the UDHR. Um, so that was that was a pretty significant moment. And also I think because it was such a huge coalition, it felt like a, a, a great mobilisation um, of NGOs but also Indigenous peoples groups um, from across the world. So it was quite a um, – felt very, very joyous and celebratory when, when it was achieved. So thanks, Lucy. We're almost close to an end of our – of our discussion and conversation. And, and I have one final question to you. So if you had to start again, what would you do differently? Hmm. That's a difficult question. Um, it's hard to know. I would have liked to start my human rights work earlier in my career. As I said, I did start doing uh, in commercial practice, uh, which I found very valuable um, in terms of the skills that I built and I found the work interesting and I made a lot of great friends. So I don't regret that, but um, it probably wasn't my my home, my natural home. <laughs> uh, so I would have liked to start that earlier. But as I said, at the time, there weren't, it wasn't, there weren't very clear pathways. Um, so I probably, yeah, took a slower path to get where I, I wanted to go. Um Okay, is is there anything you would like to to add or comment um, on this advocacy work and and career as a woman? Yeah, I suppose I I would like to say that I find it really um, uh, enriching and and stimulating work, and for me that's really crucial. That that you know your your career is a long a long period of time. It takes up a lot of your um, life. And so you want to be doing something valuable in that period. And so for me, the, a career in human rights has provided that. 
Um, and the other thing for me is, you know, it's about the people and, and friends that I made along the way um, uh, because they're people that whose values strongly align with mine and who are, you know, also passionate about the things that, that I think are really important in life. So um, it's, it's, it's also about, you know, the people that I met um, and the friendships that I made that I really value. So many thanks, Lucy, for this conversation and many thanks to all of you for listening to this first episode of our podcast, Women in International Law. Goodbye. Thanks, Natalie. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to Women in International Law, a podcast by the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights and the Atlas Network. If you found this episode inspiring, be sure to subscribe for more insightful conversation. Stay updated for upcoming events featuring women with diverse experiences in international law at geneva-academy.ch and explore inspiring women's profiles and interviews at atlaswomen.org.